Um, well, okay, I'll, I'll stand two for now, and then I guess probably I won't be able to. So, uh, yeah, hi guys, thanks for being here. Um, this is really fun. Uh, I've wanted to do a uh, skylight thing uh, for a long time now, and on the occasion of Daniel's book, we get to. So that's so cool. Um, and um, so, yeah, uh, if you guys um, don't know uh, about Boss Fight Books, um, so we are a press slash book series, um, and they're all uh, just exclusively about video games. So the, the uh, inspiration was 33 and a third. Um, the long-standing book, uh, book series uh, about albums, um, each where each one tackles a, a different album, and so yeah, each of our books um, tackles a uh, a single game. So that's why, um, and and then that's why Daniel's book is simply called World of Warcraft because um, they all do that. Even though he's, uh, as you'll see, kind of what he tackles in the book is a specific facet of World of Warcraft. You could uh, publish a 700-page tome about this game, um, but instead, you know, yeah, he's, he's biting off something um, particular. So, um, yeah, so I'm excited uh, for this, and um, uh, I'm excited to hear uh, Brock tonight. Um, this is going to be the first thing from his book that he's writing for us that I will have heard yet. Um, and it's also a book that's not officially even announced yet. So, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but first, uh, I'm going to settle down for story time, guys. And um, so that I can have hands. Um, so, uh, I, I wrote this book, and it's called Bible Adventures. Um, and it's about unlicensed Nintendo NES uh, Christian video games from the early 90s. Um, yep. <laughs> and uh, so I've read from this book a bunch of times, and um, uh, an obvious thing to do would be to read from the very beginning of it, and I've never done that until tonight. So here we go. The Voice of God. When I was seven, my family moved from Springfield, Missouri to Annandale, Virginia, so my mom could go to grad school and my dad could become the new preacher at the unfortunately named False Church, Church of Christ. <laughs> Since before I was born, he'd been preaching in the Churches of Christ, a mid-sized Protestant denomination known for its a cappella singing, full immersion baptism, weekly communion, and slavish emulation of the practices of the early church. Like the Baptists, a lot of churches of Christ had in previous generations boldly claimed to be the one true church and the only path to heaven, but they were beginning to chill out on this by the point my dad came on the scene. I learned early on that we Christians and our wares were set apart. We had our own symbols, cross, fish, crown of thorns, and our own buzzwords like sanctification, fellowship, and atonement. You could throw these words around at church with a straight face, but you got the sense, or learned the hard way, that they wouldn't play well at school. You were made to understand, too, that not everyone at school or in the world, as in the secular world, went to church or prayed at dinner or would be joining you in heaven, which was sad but necessary. Sometimes, you were warned, your peers in the world would persecute you for your faith because of the influence of Satan and that these doubters would try to trick you into not believing in God. But you had to keep believing in God because it was believing that kept you in heaven a clean place where your family was, and not hell, which, not to like scare you or anything, was worse than the worst feeling you'd ever felt in your whole life, and you felt it for all of eternity, which is a billion years times a billion, only way longer. So believe, go to church, and buy Christian stuff. Now, obviously, you didn't have to buy nothing but Christian stuff, 
You didn't have to ask your grocer if the farmer who grew your onion was a Christian, but it was a pretty cool bonus if you happened to buy a Christian onion. And it wasn't like you couldn't enjoy the Beatles, except in the homes of a couple of sad kids whose parents were still mad over John Lennon's more popular than Jesus line. It was that you got bonus points for liking DC Talk, Michael W. Smith, or better yet, in the Churches of Christ, instrument-free singing groups like acapella. The divide between Christian and secular provided leverage that was at times useful to the child of Christian parents. Asked by mom to turn the music down, you could counter, Mom, it's Christian music. Commanded by mom to turn the video games off and do some homework, Mom, it's a Christian game. And then, really reaching, I'm learning about the Bible. My child had uh, my uh, my church had a children's lending library that was basically just a little cart that got trotted out every Sunday morning, full of Christian picture books retelling some of the more perennially appealing Bible stories. More of them about the time Jesus duplicated sashimi for hungry followers than about the time Jesus resupplied the booze at a wedding party. To check out a book from the library cart, I think you simply wrote your name and the book's title in the little log and then brought the book in when it was finished. If this part of my memory is hazy, it's because I didn't often go in for books about the same stories I heard in church Sunday mornings and again at bonus church on Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings. On my own time, I mostly dug into my ever-expanding personal library, Choose Your Own Adventure, Raul Dahl, Calvin and Hobbes. There were, however, two items on the lending library cart that were of an enormous interest. NES games called Joshua and the Battle of Jericho and Bible Adventures. Four play on Nintendo, red yellow text on the black bar at the bottom of each box, and then above it was a small pink logo for a company I'd never heard of, Wisdom Tree. I didn't care that these cartridges were black instead of gray, slimmer than a normal cartridge, or that they required you to cram the cartridge into the front of your Nintendo without pushing it down. I guessed that it had something to do with the fact that these games were Christian. I'd try any game once, and the fact that these games were free to borrow blew my addict mind. My local libraries didn't even lend out VHS tapes yet let alone something as precious and expensive as an NES game. Weekend game rentals ran you 4 or $5. A new game could be bought for 40 or $50, and yet somehow these had wound up on an honor system cart being treated like something as worthless as a book. So, when I took the Bible games home with me that Sunday after lunch, hopes high, expectations low, I was pleased to find that both games were kind of fun. Bible Adventures is a three-in-one platformer starring Noah, Moses' mom, and David. My favorite of the, the three was Noah, who must gather two of every animal for his ark before the flood. It was, the ga- it was a game for collectors, a Pokemon before Pokemon. The gathering of creatures was an activity not so different than the slow, pleasing accumulation of Marvel Masterpieces superhero cards that several of my friends and I were racing each other to collect, carefully placing new cards in glossy sleeves in numerical order. In Noah's Ark, I liked the job-well-done feeling of having both pigs crossed off my list the same way I liked checking off marks on the little list that said which cards I had and which ones I needed. Joshua is an uglier game, but it was one I could play for longer. A maze crawler where you're trying to collect all the little thingies to make a magic door appear. You shot music from your body, which first made enemies angry and then killed them. Truth was, it wasn't much of a battle for Jericho. It played out more like the story of a little man buried in dirt trying to sing his way out. 
What I appreciated about Bible Adventures and Joshua playing them for the first time that Sunday afternoon was that neither was as mercilessly difficult as many of the games I'd lately been playing. The Wisdom Tree games were made of softer stuff and I was okay with that. I wouldn't have played Toys R Us prices for Bible Adventures, not that Toys R Us even stocked it, but I might have paid Funko Land prices. Certainly, these games outperformed uh, many lame licensed games like Ghostbusters, TNC Surf Designs, or The Uncanny X-Men. But instead, I played the games for a couple weeks, dutifully returned them to the church cart, and saved up for and bought a Sega Genesis, and for 20 years, never looked back. A year ago, I started my own company editing and publishing a series of books about video games. I contacted people I admired and asked them to write books for the series, and most of those writers said, I know just the game I'm going to write about. The subject of my own entry in the series was far less obvious to me. I thought about some of the games I love best, A Link to the Past, Chrono Trigger, Super Mario 64, perfect games made by Japanese guys I'd never meet in a language I'd never speak. But what did I have to say about Mario 64? It just felt good to play it. And then I remembered Bible Adventures, a game I'd never owned that had been heavily marketed to members of a faith I'd mostly left behind. And as I read every single article I could find about Bible Adventures and the semi-defunct company that made it, I discovered that despite the fact that the game was neither one of my best loved or most hated, Bible Adventures had one of the weirdest development stories of all, in all of video gaming's short history. It was a story that delved into plucky entrepreneurs, seat-of-the-pants coding, corporate muscle, horror movies, rights and the Christian retail industry and crises of faith. But was there a book in it? It was hard to say when I got my answer. Maybe it was when game developer Dan Burke told me that nearly everyone who made these games was atheist or agnostic. Maybe it was when fellow developer Roger DeForest told me about the nights he programmed music for Christian games, then out with his, went, went out with his boss and co-workers to the strip club. Maybe it was when I read the old Warp Zone interview in which interviewer Dave Allawine politely tells Wisdom Tree founder Dan Lawton, well, I really appreciate talking to you. I like your games a lot. And Lawton replies, you can't be serious. <laughs> a voice from deep within or deep without. You found your book, Durham. I've been hoping my big idea would be for a classic game with a rabid fan base that would sell a couple thousand copies on the title alone. Not an unlicensed curiosity, shit-talked by its own creator. But, as Noah understood, when the booming voice in your head gets you stuck on a crazy idea, the idea's craziness is itself much of the appeal. So when my friends asked me if I was ever going to write one of these video game books for myself, I started saying, Yep, Bible Adventures. And they went, huh. Okay, <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, that's that. Ah, thank you guys. Um, so, uh, yeah, next up, I'm excited to introduce you to Mr. Brock Wilbur. Hello, ah, that's a thing. Uh, so about a year ago, I approached Gabe and was like, uh, I want to do a book on uh, the game Genie and how that teaches you as a kid to be a cheater. Uh, and he's like, that's edgy and not what we're doing here. Uh, and then uh, due to some serendipity, uh, I got paired up with my writing hero, Nathan Rabin, and we are writing a book together for the series on the video game Postal. 
uh, which is a, a weird thing to choose because again, it's not uh, our favorite thing either, but he is uh, really focusing on the the movie adaptation of it that uh, UV Bull made. And if you don't know UV Bull, he's the guy that watched the movie, the producers. And I was like, I'll just do that. That seems like a good business model. Uh, so uh, this is uh, the first chapter from the uh, postal book. My homeschooled friend let me know he wasn't allowed to play Super Mario Brothers because of the violence. I'll say that again so it might emulate the one-two punch I felt at 12 years of age. The game Super Mario Brothers was too violent to be allowed in his home. It is this first moment in my formative years I can remember receiving information from another human being and instead of accepting it at face value, I just rejected it. Not just on a conversational level, but equally on a physical and mayhaps metaphysical level. A darkness within me twitched and spasmed and a, a torrent of word sounds poured out of me onto an unsuspecting victim whose only crime was revealing a single detail of his home life to me, and for that, I would spiral within inches of destroying him. Uh, Tyson was a homeschooled kid because we were growing up in central Kansas, and uh, Tyson's father was a preacher. This isn't about Gabe. I didn't just change Gabe's name. Uh, Tyson was older than me, but he couldn't be trusted to attend public school where demonic vice principals might awkwardly inform him about sex before marriage or how to cover a banana with a condom. Our lives had only intersected because the town's community theater had a summer musical production for idiot kids that weren't cool enough to know that no one needed another staging of Godspell in central Kansas. Jesus was already cool enough around the metropolitan of, of Salina, Kansas. And, and as as an aside for context, the next year Tyson and the rest of the homeschooled kids wouldn't be allowed to show up for the production of Once Upon a Mattress due to its overly sexual themes, e.g. mattresses. Uh, I never saw him again, and through mutual friends, I heard that when Tyson came of age to get a driver's license, he was required to recite a book of the Bible from memory before his family would let him go to the DMV. I also heard that he successfully delivered Corinthians 1 in its entirety and then failed the driving test. I, I can't confirm that, but it also seems too on brand that anything less could be true. Anyway. Uh, Tyson wasn't allowed to play Super Mario Brothers because it was too violent. That, this wasn't 1985 when the game came out. This is 90 fucking seven. Uh, things like Marilyn Manson existed. The film Event Horizon was in theaters. I had been shooting dudes in the dick in GoldenEye 007 for several weeks. It was in this cultural landscape. How do you wrap your mind around the idea that a kid two years your senior, living in the shelter from the horror of mustachioed Italian men stepping on mushrooms and 8-bit turtles, not only did he share this information with me, he defended his family's decision to protect him from such vile trash. Again, this is a game where a plumber goes down a tube to collect coins. Hilariously, Tyson wasn't far away from me on the conservative spectrum. My father wrote opinion pieces for the local paper advocating for parents to shield their children from such corrosive and dangerous programming such as Ren and Stimpy, Beavis and Butthead, and the Gremlins films. Even the Simpsons were off limits, and when I showed up in grade school the morning of these op-eds, I was predictably bullied by the cooler kids, and I predictably took my dad's side. Uh, Beavis and Butthead makes you look stupid, I would declare. I didn't know what I was missing, so it was easy for me to take my dad's side, even in the face of incredible peer pressure. Now, one night at a friend's house, I saw two episodes of Ren and Stimpy and the entire third act of Gremlins 2, which is just cocaine on film, uh, and realized my dad was, not, was only saving me from the experience of manic joy, and maybe adults were just weird killjoys for no reason. Uh, I resolved to save Tyson from a similar fate. He was a millhouse of the highest order, but certainly... Uh, this saved Christian boy could be saved again by the power of dangerous popular culture. So I invited Tyson to a sleepover. Uh, teenage boy sleepovers are traditionally a source of salvation through experimentation, and boy howdy did I have a plan. The local pre-blockbuster rental store was a mon-pop operation that uh, opened a video game section one Friday by simply placing a large number of PC games in boxes along the wall. These floppy disks and CD-ROMs were no way meant to be legally rented out, and I suspect the kindly folks running the shop had no idea what the game Postal in a plain brown package contained, or certainly their good Christian worlds would not have allowed them to place it on the shelf next to SimCity. Sure, there was a 
rating system on the cover that should have warned attentive parents that the game was off limits, but the contextless capital M didn't mean anything to people at the time. So just to be sure, I switched the discs in the store so it looked like I was renting the game adaptation of Tech War. Sorry about shorting your IP those five bucks, Mr. Shatner. I hope I've made up for it by buying all of your terrible albums. Uh, that night, Tyson came to the Wilbur house, and immediately I wanted to share with him the good news, my gospel of guts and adults-only entertainment. Unfortunately, as the CD-ROM was not meant for rental purposes, it took nearly 30 minutes to get the game installed and configured on our Gateway 2000. During that time, Tyson managed to find the box from the rental store. He grew increasingly concerned over what a tech war uh, might relate to and if he should be taking part in such a thing. Again, Mr. Shatner, I'm sorry. Uh, luckily, the postal box wasn't around uh, because he would have read the back text on it at, as follows. This is what's written on it. Welcome to Paradise, Arizona. They're out to get you, or are they? It doesn't matter. You don't have time to think. Only time to kill. Go postal. Blast, maim, and firebomb your way through 17 unsuspecting locales from a small town to a heavily guarded military complex. Conspiracy or insanity? Don't get too crazy. So take advantage of the third person premeditated perspective that lets you see exactly who's cold and who's still able to pull a trigger. So freaking real, your victims actually beg for mercy and scream for their lives, exclamation point. Mass murder opportunities include spraying protesters, mowing down marching bands, and charbroiling whole towns. Real-time 3D characters rage against beautifully hand-painted killing fields. I don't, what are they? So, so it's such ads, such cool. But for a 12-year-old Midwestern kid who wasn't allowed to watch rated R movies, this was like getting your first boner. And I deceived a series of grown-ups into making this happen, and this poor preacher's kid was about to be born again in my unholy image. And I made Tyson sit next to me as the game loaded up. Postal? What's postal? Oh man, just you wait. You're going to love this. I didn't know what we were doing either. The game opens with a screen that says, fair warning, you must be 17 or older to play. Tyson, recognizing that this applied to neither of us, began to get squirmy. In my memory, I grabbed his hand to keep him in the chair, but to be fair, that could just be the homoerotic subtext of what was going down. Uh, then a man with a gun appears on screen. A bunch of cops start shooting at him, so I open fire on the police. Once they are all done screaming and dying, I shoot a bunch of people in a small town. They scream much louder, and one of them explodes. Uh, then someone I cannot see on the screen shoots me, and I die. Yet another schizophrenic man executed by the police in America, and you can see what a systematic... Oh, and Tyson Tyson is gone. Tyson is gone now. Tyson is on the ground in a different room holding his stomach. I'm very sick and I think I need to go home. Would you call my dad? I call his family and in the eight minutes before they arrive, I attempt some sort of latch ditch salvation for Tyson by explaining to him the plot and the murders of the film Seven, even though I have not seen it and have only pieced together five of the deaths from things that I heard from high school students. This does not help his medical condition, so he locks himself in the bathroom until his dad arrives. I did not save Tyson, but I did render a kid violently ill with violent game violence in under 30 seconds. And once you've seen the power of that firsthand, it's, not, it's hard to not spend the rest of your life fixating on the machinations of these dark arts. Also, it's borderline hilarious that this concentrated power would come from Postal, which would never be considered the best or most interesting example of video game violence or the starting point for a defense of games as art. This situa situation is comparable to hearing your first rock and roll song, having it scare the weird Christian kid, and then worshipping that song even though it's Limp Biscuit. Which, maybe that happened too. Fuck off. You didn't 97 the way I 97. Uh, thank you. Jared Kovac here, so he's reading from his forthcoming book, um, Soft and Cuddly. Yes. 
so the uh, the last time that I read from this book, which was what at the AWP event, was that the last? There was an enormous amount of preamble because the uh, system that Soft and Cuddly is on is the ZX Spectrum, which is this basically the shittiest computer ever made. Um, and I actually brought one to, to uh, you, you shouldn't touch this though, because it, it came from eBay and it's really, really dirty. Um, but I also brought a copy of the game to sort of demonstrate wh what we're looking at. So the, the video games all came on audio cassettes. <laughs> and um, John George Jones was, you know, these, these systems were so primitive that one person could develop the game. One person could do all of the design, all of the art, all of the music, and he, well, sort of, the spectrum barely has music. Um, but he was like this deranged 13-year-old kid who was really obsessed with Alice Cooper and did a game for Activision called Go to Hell. And it's like you go to hell. That's the game. And um, Activision was so freaked out by it that they created a dummy label to release it on called Triple Six Entertainment. And then uh, the game did not do especially well. Um, and so then his next game, which was Soft and Cuddly, was John George Jones unhinged, uh, upset about how terrible the reception to go to hell had actually been. Um, and then what happened with Soft and Cuddly, if you can see the cover, there's a picture of like, like sort of a demon Hamlet holding up heads on top of a pile of heads. Uh, the game came out two or three days after England's first gun massacre and the uh, tabloid press started blaming it basically on the game more or less and he had this really weird experience of being 19 and suddenly he's in the tabloids being blamed for I don't know like this gun massacre where this guy basically blew up a town um, and he you know, I mean, he was 19, so he thought it was fucking awesome. And, uh, yeah, so this is, this is a chapter about Soft and Cuddly, and that was more preamble than I had hoped to do. Uh, okay. The first thing you notice after a surprising sedate, surprisingly sedate loading screen is John George Jones's drawing of Alice Cooper, which is also in Go to Hell. Uh, but the image has changed. It's no longer recognizable as Alice. The face still winks, but it's been recolored in two shades of blue, light for skin, dark for the hair. There's a green open sore on the forehead, which leaks blood. Non-Alice's right eye also leaks blood. His left eye bulges out. A full, distended round circle, which leaks blood. His mouth is a red smear, the smile of the man who laughs. It leaks blood. Atop his head grows a crown of spikes. Jones has placed two monsters on either side of non-Alice. The monsters are blue creatures which open and close their jaws while crunching a face between their teeth. When the faces are crunched, the monsters' jaws leak blood. A hand-drawn logo, reading soft and cuddly, rests beneath the three figures, surrounded on both sides by red snakes. 
When the player tires of the leering non-Alice, any press of a button will bring up an input select screen, giving the standard choices between keyboard and joystick control. A scrolling marquee runs along the screen's bottom. As long as the player doesn't select a method of input, they can wait and read the full text which reads, uh, copyright L. Green and J. Jones, X666. You are Dren, the last of the kingdom of Starp, the last of the race of Snigriv, and the highest of the Loxes, this is literally nonsense, um, of the universe. The queen is dying, and only you, a real Dren Eckhaf, can save her. Do you believe this tripe? Are you mad? It's time someone shot Zarf of Fex, Cronus the Mole, kill them all, Go and have fun, Dren. Hi, Alice. <laughs> this seems as good a place as any to discuss the narrative of Soft and Cuddly. Like Go to Hell, it's totally unclear what's actually happening. The cassette inlay which accompanied the game contained two narratives which have, no which have nothing to do with the one that appear appears in the marquee. The first narrative on the back of the inlay reads, All dead. All dead all dead and gone. But this is the cyborg age. Kids laugh and joke on the streets and say, we can rebuild him. Well, you can, but it has to be the right mix of sinew and metal. And first you have to enter the nightmare to retrieve the pieces of what spawned you. Ugh, horror show, horror show. <laughs> the second narrative on the inlay interior reads, your mother, the android queen, has been badly damaged in an accident. Your father has been locked in a fridge with evil spirits by your mother. Nice family, eh? You must find the eight spirit keys and exchange them for information about where the various parts of your mother are hidden. To do this, take the keys to your father in the fridge. When all the parts of her body have been taken to the fridge, find the needle and thread so she can be sewn back together. Whatever else happens in Soft and Cuddly, there are no spirit keys. There is no needle and thread. John George Jones commented on this in a letter excerpted in issue number 26, February 1988, of Your Sinclair. And this letter is difficult, but we'll try. Um, Ur... I must say, I just got a completely hat stand, and it must be said, utterly unprintable letter from the author of the powerhouse's soft and cuddly, John Wacko Jones. Ooh, again, it shocks even me, and I don't shock easy, matey. The bit I can print tells of an update to the slightly vague instructions you get with the game. And this quotes the letter. Now this is important, slaver bark. The instructions are a touch misleading, hehe. <laughs> there are no keys, but before you can get any bit of your mother, you must visit the fridge first. The fridge moves position every game. Then your decapitated dad will reveal a piece of your mother's body. It normally starts with her body take it back to the fridge, and so on. If anyone wants to write me, feel free. I am interested in other people's opinions, even if it is just to remind me that mine are best. And so on, for another couple of slimy pages. What a fruit loop. Still, thanks for the tips, I think. In the marquee text, the copyright notice attributes the game to John George Jones and someone called L. Green. 
Throughout the game, the player encounters a graphic of two conjoined twin babies. On their chest appears the word Lucy. In an interview, John George Jones talked about the original story behind Soft and Cuddly. Lucy Green is the character whose parents you are trying to reunite after all the bits have been found and sewn back together so they can be brought back to life. The powerhouse toned this down to some robots queen dismembered body type chat, though the underlying, the underlying original story was very positive about bringing people together and righting some injustice, but apparently the details were a bit too much for their marketing department. Before the game even starts, four narratives have befallen the player. An argument can be made that we've entered the realm of the ontological. Can any narrative about a game or any fictional work be said to exist? And if a game's narrative can be said to exist, then how do we determine which of the four stories is the real one? Is Soft and Cuddly about the cyborg age? Is it about the android queen? Are we playing as Dren, last of the Snigriv? Or is this the tale of Lucy Green and her parents? Character is effaced by rounds of revision and commercial, commercial considerations. These, the questions are not meaningless. They argue towards John George Jones's strength as a designer and why his games exert a power 30 years after everyone has forgotten the hundred other titles released by the powerhouse or its parent company, CRL. There is something unique and strange about a person whose two major works are designed in such a way that it is impossible to say what exactly is happening. Consider by contrast the gold standard of Matt Smith and Manic Miner and Jet Set Willy, which are like the most famous games for the spectrum. Um, even, even when we load the games blind, we understand the action. Miner Willy is attempting to achieve a specific goal, goal which will lead to a reward. Let's move even closer to the source, back to the early days. Think about Pac-Man, as primitive a narrative as one can imagine. Your goal is, is to acquire round, glowing communion wafers while not having your Christian faith shaken by the presence of disembodied spirits, a process which occasionally requires that you don the armor of a holy warrior and defeat the evil of doubt by consuming ethereal specters into your corporal form. But of course, we know that Pac-Man isn't about the sadomasochistic spiritual practices of Opus Dei, because we can see contrary evidence with our eyes. A hungry yellow head eats pellets while trying to dodge ghosts until some of the pellets make him eat ghosts. But there's nothing like this in Soft and Cuddly, no visual evidence to confirm or refute any of the four possible narratives. It just exists. If either of Jones's games were one-offs, if we were talking about one game that was resistant to the imposition of narrative, then it would be an easy discussion. It's an accident. It's a mistake. Someone fucked up. Something got lost in translation. Something went wrong in marketing. But when the process is repeated, then the situation is different. Do something once and you're an asshole. Do it twice and you're a genius. Beneath the gory graphics, beneath the teenaged madness, beneath the fuck you and the obsession with Alice Cooper, there is an, un an unknowable thing. In an email exchange, Clem Chambers, the founder and owner of CRL, described Soft and Cuddly as a pretty sketchy games, and if the graphics were non-schlocky, it would have had no selling potential. It was definitely a piece of exploitation where it's utterly naive in comparison with the games that came la later. The game wasn't up to much. To make schlock work, you have to back it up with quality craft.
But this is entirely wrong. Schlock is schlock because there is no mystery to the thing. The heart of soft and cuddly is mystery. What is this? Who did this? What is happening? What the fuck is going on? Um, so it occurs to me that the uh, the running theme of like everybody leading up to Daniel is just the weirdo misfits of video gaming. But you know, I, I promise, like not not all of our books are uh, are about this. Uh, <laughs> that maybe you'd never heard of until tonight, including uh, the subject of Daniel's book, which is World of Warcraft. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited to to hear him uh, read from this tonight, and uh, we'll get a chance to talk about it a little more afterward. But uh, so I'll turn it over to him. Yeah, Daniel Lucy. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming. Uh, how many how many people here have played World of War Warcraft? How many of you still play World of Warcraft? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, that's cool. Uh, who, who what did you play? What were you? I played for like 5 minutes. You played for 5 minutes. <laughs> My friends I played really for a long, longer than five minutes. <laughs> Let me tell you. It's a little droopy. It's fine. I'll recover it. Cool. I'm just going to read from the top. In an aggressively hormonal and socially isolated stage of my life, I used World of Warcraft as a means of social connection, romance, entertainment, inspiration, and escape. When WoW came out in November, of two, 20, November 23rd, 2004, I was 13 years old. I had been playing video games since the age of four, starting off my lifelong passion with a Nintendo 64 console and all the greats of the time. Super Mario 64, The Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, Star Fox 64, Mario Kart 64, GoldenEye 007. Shortly after its release, World of Warcraft was installed and ready to play on my computer. And I was about to enter a world that would impact me for the rest of my life. In my nine years of gaming, never before had I seen a single title take such a massive audience by storm. The MMO, Massively Multiplayer Online. Game. By the by. Cool. Dominated gaming media, so much so that it merited the creation of news websites dedicated entirely to World of Warcraft. One of the more popular WoW news sources at the time, MMOChampion.com, started in 2007 and during WoW's prime brought in no fewer than 10 million users a month. The game soon burst out of its niche culture and into the mainstream, making headlines for its enormous financial achievement and its knack for drawing in gamers and non-gamers alike. I was introduced to World of Warcraft by my stepdad, Joe, a Navy man halfway through his two-year deployment in Okinawa, Japan, when he met and married my mother. One afternoon, Joe took me to the mall on one of the first few one-on-one -on -one outings we ever had. Two strangers who were somehow required to build a parent-child relationship. He was eager to get on my good side, and I, as a manipulative 13-year-old, was eager to have him buy me shit. <laughs> 
We ended up in the EB Games store, and there it was. The game I'd been dying to play. I've heard so much about this game, I said, picking up the box of EverQuest 2. Joe shook his head. Nah, he said, handing me a different box. One with an angry-faced green creature on the front of it. World of Warcraft, emblazoned in gold font. Let's play this instead. This was the fall of 2004. Joe was on a two-month leave, but he'd soon be returning to Okinawa. It was difficult connecting with Joe when there was such a huge distance between us physically and emotionally. My mother had remained a single parent for nearly 12 years after divorcing my biological father, so my new father figure had to find a way to break down some emotional walls to connect with me. Joe intended to use World of Warcraft as a tool to bond the two of us so that we could play together, chat, and continue continue the experience even when he was overseas. And to that end, his plan succeeded. While Joe was overseas, World of Warcraft served as our primary means of communication. We'd log on and literally squat our characters down on a bench somewhere in one of Azeroth's grand cities and type away to each other. This method of bonding worked for us. We kept each other up to date and explored the fantasy realm quite a bit together, playing the roles of father and son in a virtual world. But what Joe could not have predicted was that World of Warcraft would soon become a lifestyle for me. I eagerly avoided the 8th grade social world to spend more time in Azeroth, replacing outdoor activities and in-person hangouts with in-game events and dungeon raids. Eventually I joined a guild, a group of players who team up to face the game's tougher content, and my dedication for WoW only increased from there. In other words, I bought into the full World of Warcraft experience, one that can be broken up into five phases. The first is you pay Blizzard, and after purchasing the game client for $50, you must set up an online subscription account that charges you a monthly fee of $15 to retain online access to the game. So at its peak, uh, that was 15 million people paying Blizzard $15 a month. Just think about that. It's It's nuts. Part two, early game. You pick a character faction. You can take sides with the mighty horde or the honorable alliance. You pick a character race, and if you team up with the horde during the classic unexpanded version of WoW, you could be a brutish orc or a gangly stonery troll, a peaceful shamanistic tauren, or one of the cursed undead. If you took the alliance route, you could be a run-of-the-mill xenophobic fantasy human, a tall stoic night elf, or a crafty gnome, or your typical loud bombastic dwarf. Finally, you pick your class. Each faction has the warrior, mage, warlock, druid, priest, rogue, and hunter to choose from, and the paladin uh, was class-specific to the alliance. The shaman used to be specific to the horde. But Blizzard has since made all classes available to all factions. The third phase is mid-game. The level cap before any of the expansions was 60. If you found yourself between levels 30 and 40, you had a pretty good sense of whether or not you were going to play it for the long haul. Statistically, players would drop off around this point if the game wasn't their cup of tea mechanically, or if they didn't have anyone to play with online. I was not a part of the minority, which fell away. So that brings us to part four, which is the end game. Once you hit level 60, it was time to venture forth into the game's top-level dungeons. Dungeons are challenging areas where you take a party, a group of exactly five players, and send them into a dangerous zone to defeat its bosses and earn the dungeon's coveted rare items. These items are designed to make your character powerful enough to eventually face raid content. Raids are huge dungeons made for 40-player groups to combat against World of Warcraft's toughest enemies. 
Nowadays, raids only require between 10 and 25 players, but back in the unexpanded World of Warcrafts, raids necessitated a group of 40 individuals to team up and not only play the game together, but effectively coordinate their efforts to operate as one unified monster, demon, zombie, whatever killing machine. This logistical terror is made less terrible via guilds, teams of players who raid together regularly. Guilds unify players with similar goals and playtimes and allow players to anticipate each, each other's tactics and gameplay abilities, turning raids into both a team practice and the game itself. Third-party voice chat software like Ventrilo or TeamSpeak is often mandated across the guild so that huge groups of players can communicate effectively in real time. Some guilds are casual and face off against raid content only once or twice a month. Others hold a strict daily schedule, which leads us to the final, optional tier of becoming a WoW player. Hardcore players. To become the best a World of Warcraft server has to offer requires commitment. Hardcore raiding guilds, guilds that compete with one another on a national scale to clear endgame bosses content before any other guild in the world or on a smaller scale their server, spend up to six scheduled evenings a week, usually between four to six hours of game time per session to progress through raid content. This race is tracked on the leaderboards of wowprogress.com, a third-party website that displays every boss killed by every wow guild on Earth. I became a hardcore player. After Joe got me hooked, I spent the next three and a half years playing WoW with the same group of people, three to four nights a week, three to five hours a night. These were people I got to know intimately. The vast multitudes of people playing WoW turned the game into a global cultural phenomenon, which in turn made excessive playing socially acceptable. At its peak, World of Warcraft held 12 million annual subscribers, almost half the entire population of Europe in the 6th century. And that is exactly what made World of Warcraft the World of Warcraft we know. People. Millions and millions of people. I was participating in a raid on the shadowy Tower of Karazhan with 24 other of my fellow guildmates when I told my stepfather to go fuck himself. <clears throat> he was in my room asking me to turn off the computer and enjoy a nice day in the park with the family, the kind of scheduled outing that I used to crave, and instead of agreeing, I lashed out like the angsty teen that I was. Immediately after, I stared up at him goggle-eyed, feeling shocked at my own absurdity immediately predicting the ramifications of my blatant disregard for parent-child dynamics. To understand why I lashed out, you must first understand how deeply I'd bought in. One of the first changes made to the original World of Warcraft, or Vanilla WoW, in WoW's first expansion was the reduction from raiding parties from 40 to 25. This created a much more intimate environment amongst teammates. Nobody was superfluous. Everyone needed to carry their weight for their entire operation, or the entire operation would stall like a Rube Goldberg machine, missing a domino. As a result of the change, guilds took extensive measures to screen new raiding members to ensure they were not bringing on any dead weight, or as hardcore raiders, raiders like to call them, scrubs. 
To even get to a point where I qualified for an interview with the guild, I had to reach a level cap, which was one month of gameplay, averaging 20 hours a week, play through lower difficulty dungeons to acquire enough gear on my own to reach minimum levels of damage per second to provoke a viable asset to the raid, which was another month, and finally join the guild on a probationary basis to show that they could get along with me personally, which took another month. This process, more demanding than landing yourself an entry-level job, is what separated me from the casual arena of World of Warcraft. I went through three interviews, one with the guild master, one with my class leader, I played a rogue, and finally one with the raid leader, the fellow whose job it was to read any and all material on boss encounters, teach us the raid mechanics of every encounter, then call the shots during the encounter itself. The skill set required to be a good raid leader is rather impressive. You have to give commands from a core set of knowledge on an improvised basis depending on the actions of 24 other people. Having the proper reaction to all of those contingencies was what made good raiding guilds good and often earned the raid leader the respect of his or her comrades. Through no small effort, I made the cut. I was now a member of a prestigious raiding guild. According to the journal I kept the summer of 2005, this was my proudest achievement to date, usurping my first place trophy from the 2003 AYSO Soccer League. <clears throat> Two of my real life friends were a part of this guild, and my acceptance did wonders for our bond. We went from hanging out on campus with mutual friends to exclusively seeing each other on a daily basis, hanging out after school, taking midnight trips to Denny's after binging on WoW for hours. Eventually, my commitment to the guild surpassed even theirs, and I developed closer, a closer affinity with my online guildmates than I had with them. My real-life friends moved on to a more casual guild while I continued in the arena of the hardcore raider. From my parents' perspective, red flags about my relationship with World of Warcraft started appearing long before I told my stepdad to go fuck himself. A few months after I had started playing in 2004, I skipped Rosh Hashanah. Instead of celebrating the Jewish New Year with my mother, four aunts, six cousins, and a gaggle of family friends, I stayed home to play WoW. My mother was livid. Joe made an international call from Okinawa to ask me why I decided against spending time with my family that evening. It bothered me that Joe had called me instead of messaging me in-game. I told him about my discomfort with family gatherings and that I'd rather be playing WoW than, uh, than blowing on a shafar. That was a good line. I forgot I put that there. <laughs> More than anything, I found it necessary to impress my guildies. There was trust placed in me to perform a job, a job I'd spent weeks studying for, for and grinding toward. I often think about the amount of time I spent on this goal, searching for some kind of silver lining, some kind of skill that I refine that I now apply to my everyday life. I'm sure my stepfather, moments after being cussed at by his, a kid in his care, was asking himself the same exact thing. What could his stepson be deriving from such prolonged exposure to WoW? At the time, all that mattered was the impression I'd leave on my companions if I abandoned them mid-raid. In Mario Leonbauer Baum's and Martina Foringer's paper, Towards Classification Criteria for Internet Gaming Disorder, Debunking Differences Between Addiction and High Engagement in a German Sample of World of Warcraft Players, it's a mouthful, research papers, the authors point out, that while we humans have become good at identifying substance addiction in, in one another, loss of control, withdrawal symptoms, and negative consequences in school, the workplace, or in relationships, we are much less experienced in recognizing addiction to online games. 
the addiction, like gaming itself, is simply too new. The role of researchers like Linbar Baum and Foringer, then, is to identify what being addicted to games actually looks like. The paper's study focuses on the divide between players who are highly engaged with World of Warcraft but are still capable of maintaining their responsibilities in the real world and a minority of players that seem to have problems with a healthy amount of gaming. I was a member of the latter group, and with no... Excuse me. And while no term for my affliction existed at the time, the American Psychiatric Association in 2013 introduced Internet Gaming Disorder, or IGD, to the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The Psychiatrist's Bible of Mental, Dis- uh, which is the Psychiatrist's Bible of Mental Disorders, as a condition for further study. When I recently asked Joe what he thought eight years ago when I told him to go fuck himself, he told me that I reacted how any addict reacts when his vice is threatened. Joe's solution was to ban me from World of Warcraft. I didn't take the news well. I claimed that my life would be devoid of any joy, that this was all I had. These claims only solidified my stepfather's understanding that I was addicted to World of Warcraft. (laughs) At the time, I really didn't think I could get by without WoW. As a five-foot kid with a love for fantasy and computers, I practically had a target painted on my back for bullies. The MMO was my salvation. Joining an online community under a fantastical new identity was a safe reprieve from schoolyard, schoolyard, schoolyard torment. <clears throat> Besides, everything online seemed to be just as fulfilling as anything the real wor- world had to offer. Perhaps what Joe saw in me was a stark reflection of his own tussles with escapism. Joe, in the midst of his duties in Japan, was in a place of mighty uncertainty and rapid change. All within a year's time, he found himself with a new wife, a sudden pregnancy, and a stepson he was expected to father. Joe was only 24 years old, as old as I am now writing this book. Video games remained a static, relaxing certainty in his life, and his own commitment to WoW often matched my own. My first brush with gaming addiction was on a virtual pet website called Neopets. Ha. Oh, God, that takes a lot to admit. I owe my full-stack web, deve- web development abilities to constructing and maintaining an online storefront where I specialize in selling paintbrushes to beautify the Neopet world's adorable digitized companions. The primary draw of Neopets, like that of World of Warcraft, was its community. I was able to relate to, to and share with people my age without any social risk. Under the safety blanket of the internet, I got to build new personas, accentuating the aspects of myself that I liked, my craftiness, wit, and my aptitude for storytelling, while burying those that made me insecure, my physicality, my frizzy jufro. Behind the abstraction, behind the abstraction of an avatar, I hope that maybe someday the idealistic avatars I created would somehow replace my real self. In 2012, three researchers from the University of Hamburg's Institute of Social Psychology published an article titled, The Social Side of Gaming, How Playing Online Computer Games Creates Online and Offline Social Support. The study sought to discover whether a social life built on an online games community could be as fulfilling as a social life born of in-person interactions. After surveying 811 online gamers, the authors concluded that online gaming may indeed result in strong social ties between games played, gamers playing the game together, but that the gamers generally only reach a level of deep social fulfillment if the relationship extends beyond the game world and into the real one. 
Mechanically, World of Warcraft is a formulaic numbers-based RPG that relies solely on stat boosting, gear building, and farming the same, uh, the, the same or, or similar content in hopes of getting a brief spurt of euphoria brought on by epic-rated items. Compared to a solo sandbox game like The Elder Scrolls Skyrim, with its lush world, fully voiced over dialogue, and vast possibility space, World of Warcraft's gameplay has been engineered to run on rails. Any of the variance in WoW's gameplay comes from the people you encounter it with. That's all I'm going to do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, what time is it? Yeah. Yeah. Let's have the, all the authors come back up if you guys want to, and we can have a tete-a-tete. A um, <clears throat> brief tete-a-tete. Do you want to go in here? Oh, sure. And then take some questions from the audience. Say, like, 15 minutes or so. Great. I get his whiskey. Uh, where's the uh, Kobeck? Ah, there he is. Dang it. <laughs> Um, well, cool. So, uh, what, uh, one thing I was curious, um, I was, uh, like, w- w- so much of this book is about mechanics, and um, one part that really stands out to me is where you talk about how uh, not only did you max out the mechanics of your character to better help your guild, but you used, like, patches, basically, right, to take the visual of WoW off of WoW and instead reduce the game to its barest essentials so that you could further like maximize the damage that you're doing to bosses and be a more effective teammate. Um, I guess like what I'm curious about is like how much of that is World of Warcraft to you and like how much of it like I, I, and I also realized like working with you on this book I learned so much about that and I still I don't know shit about the mythology of of, of uh, actual yeah. Warcraft, and so like, yeah, like how much of it for you is that versus how much do you have a soft spot, and how much does like the story and uh, the visuals and that stuff of the game mm-hmm. matter to you? Uh, I think that the story of WoW is is super dope. Uh, I think it's pretty cool, but I was definitely not playing the game for fun. Eventually. Uh, it's and and that was like speaking to like stripping away the kind of user interface of the game. Like it didn't become like the game eventually wasn't about how it looked or uh, the visual elements that uh, the user interface and the user experience was about. Because then it was all just about optimization and optimizing a system. And for a lot of people, including myself, that's what it became. Uh, hi, hi, Yuli. Um, and. Uh, because that's all that mattered in that arena of gameplay. It wasn't about the story. It wasn't about like the reason we were in like raids or playing the game. Like like if someone's playing a game nowadays, you're you want a reason of some kind. You're either like super entertained by it, uh, or you're interested in the story, or you're looking for some kind of like deep narrative, emotional experience, whatever it is. And at that point in World of Warcraft, it was just uh, to optimize numbers and impress people that I wanted to impress. Uh, because it was important to me. It was important to my social life. Yeah. What's up? What would it take for you to play another MMORPG? 
I, I prob, I, I don't know if I would anymore. Uh, like the idea of it seems like it's such an investment to get into a new MMO. Uh, you're playing me because you want to play the Elder Scrolls online. You're asking me that question. Uh, <laughs> it's it's such an investment, you know. It's not just a game. Like you have to do so many things to. So yeah, I don't know, man. We could talk about it more <laughs> later. <laughs> mm -hmm. Is it hard to do all this? Uh, being born in '97, that was uh, born in that was such a that was such a cool brag. To, uh, I mean, the fiance looked at each other like, "Oh, ninety-seven, like good, good for him." Oh, gotcha. That's uh, I, when when I was reading the draft of the book and I was writing back and forth with you, there were there were two things that I, I saw. The first was in the chapter that you read here. I was like, all I could imagine in my head was Joe, like swiveling a chair around and being like, "You know, son, the original tribe, the original guild was the Jewish faith," and then that's how he was gonna. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, there was a period like 2012 2013 where there was a lot of dudes that were like leaving Warcraft uh, because they had like the same sort of addiction system built in, yeah. and then yeah. translating that into like weightlifting and stuff. Whoa. And and I I know that you're not weightlifting in that same way, uh, but it is the question of like when you step out from that place, do you carry with you those same systems that you have in yeah. in, in stuff in, in daily life? Like, is that how you approach things like writing this book or? <laughs> I would like to think so. Uh, I, I think that my the way that a part of me wants to say yes because a part of me wants to justify the time spent playing that game uh, and say that it was spent yeah refining a system for op like optimizing things. I don't know if that's a lie. Uh, so Would you say answer. addiction has made you a better person? Is that what we're trying to <laughs> give us uh, redemption? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah, I I would like to think that it, it refines something. Uh, I think that I, I think the awareness that eventually I developed around why I was playing World of Warcraft ultimately benefited me as a person. I think that recognizing that I was using something to escape reality and why I was using it to escape reality made me a better person, ultimately. I don't think that it had any sort of practical effects aside from that, but I mean, the, that kind of awareness can build into some kind of practicality, sure. Um, but I was hiding from, from the world, and it made me question why, eventually. And that was, that's ultimately a powerful thing, I would say. Um, when you pick up a game nowadays, do you see the same books that... that that were in WoW, and are they like clear to you? Are you sort of free of them? I don't know if uh, if WoW, because like the hook in WoW is so random. Because uh, like to me, the the hook is the community building around it, right? And so then you're just talking about games that uh, that have some sort of communal aspect to it. Uh, and it's 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 not like a game that I would say is uh, is like Candy Crush or something, where where King Games has been on the record of saying that they have psychologists working with their developers to make their games more addicting, and that's the hook that they refine. Um, I, I think that it's made, yeah, yeah. The short answer is yes, I think so. But it, it's it's a bit more random than that, I think, with, with MMOs, yeah. I think. Uh, I when I do think you can basically say that it's helped you because I, I got to that point and I do think that like wow I was just 
systems. Sure, yeah. And that's, and that's just a lot of practice. That's several years of practicing that, and that's overall intimidating here at some point, especially since you do have such an animation. But I'd like to know, when did, at what point did you quit and decide, I, I'm done with this, I, I can't do this anymore? Or is it because you had real life obligations that really overcame it? Or? Uh, I, I, I quit a few times. Uh, I would say that the, the first time that I actually stopped playing was uh, in my senior year of high school because uh, I started experiencing who I am as a person outside of that context uh, and that because World of Warcraft gave me this like kind of social safety net and it made me in my high school career toward the end of it extremely blasé and that made me really popular because not giving a fuck translates into popularity generally speaking just in life that's just applicable to so any real. situation I think uh, like w at the moment I stopped caring everything became easier in in my high school life like like someone calling me like a, a like a small faggot or whatever on at on campus somewhere, I would just be like, eh, okay, I'm going to go fucking raid. I don't care. <laughs> uh, and then, like, then popularity happened, and, uh, and then I got a girlfriend, and, uh, and then I started getting engaged in things, and I started seeing myself outside of the context of a game, which I thought I needed. Like, I legit thought I needed that to do something for me. Uh, and then that that's when the drift started happening. And I think that is applicable to most people. Uh, they see that they've been using it for something, and they're like, fuck, uh, I'm not just playing a game. I'm, yeah, escaping. What's up? Um, I have, like, a couple, kind of a couple. Uh, but the first one is, how did playing a game that long, I imagine, in, you know, in your room in, like, the dark, mm -hmm. how did... <laughs> <laughs> because knows. I did that. How, how, like, how, if at all, how did that impact your relationship with time? Um, like, out in the real world. And then the other one is, how did the addiction show up when you weren't playing? Okay, the first part. How did it react? Okay, with time. Uh, I think that, I, I don't know if it messed with that at all necessarily because like my schedule was still like very regimented just not in a healthy way and so I feel I feel like uh, I was very aware with the amount of time I was spending I think through and through I was I, I wasn't I didn't just blink and be like oh my god I just spent nine hours playing this game I was super cogent about that uh, and what was the second part like how did the addiction show up um, when you weren't playing, like in your day to day, uh, I'd be like hostile towards shit that was in, in flick, like interfering. Uh, just that, like I, I would, uh, I started sacrificing opportunities and getting hostile toward things that were interfering with me. Like primarily my parents, uh, and I wasn't asking why I was doing that. It was just like a very, it was an unhealthy behavior. Yeah. I'm really into contemporary philosophy, so a lot of this is love casting. But I, I was thinking today, I, I can I can conceptualize a world where waking life would be a luxury and online life would be like the poor man's normal life. You know, I just this thought popped into me. I just know you're going to get a good grip on that. I mean, the fact that there is such a compelling uh, stimulus reward to being online. Um, versus being out in the world where there's so much trouble and problem. Yeah, I mean. I 
I think this could be an interesting conversation among us. Uh, we're all going to be living in virtual reality in like two years, right? Easy. I'm not here now. You're not here now. Yeah, yeah. Brock isn't actually a six-seven giant. He's he's, he's also he's, Daniel Lee. He's also <laughs> like all all four of us white dudes are actually the same white yeah. dude. That's why we look like a woolly willy where somebody's just moved. Yeah, yeah. The same yeah, yeah. We're all we're all actually just the same motherfucker. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to joke <laughs> at your question. Uh, but it's like it is like the three identity There's a level of uh, everything that you just described, this like narrative, and there's a level of romanticism that can't be encapsulated in the virtual. There's a level of humanity that can't be there. Because uh, I'm posed with this question a lot, actually. Uh, there's a, a metaphysical dichotomy. I guess is my answer if we're talking about contemporary philosophy. Uh, that encaps that that like us just being like peace. We're just going to be out in the virtual world. Uh, it's not as enticing to me. I imagine having experienced like the escape of that. Um, and even if we're talking about like just some souped-up avatar where we get to like fucking hang out in space paradise and go wherever we want to in our uh, imaginary worlds, there's a level of humanity that we are hungry for, that we're really fucking hungry for. That that is the reason why we're playing these things to begin with is because we're so hungry for this aspect that we're trying to fill with the virtual. Uh, which is why we're trying to fill it with a virtual to begin with, is because we're looking for it in the real world. Uh, so, and that can only be found in the real world. It's not out there in the digital. That's that's my answer. One more, maybe. Would you say, on some platonic level, you want the characters to be? Interchangeable, like you would be able to tell them from another player. Would you actually want that? No, I don't want characters. No, but, but would you imagine that's where games development is going? I think a portion of it. Yeah. Um. So so yeah. So this is sort of a blanket statement that sure. obviously has a lot of exceptions to it, but. Um, there's a tendency of a lot of video games and the types that were maybe written about to be sort of gendered in their appeal. Um, and again, there's obviously exceptions. But why do you think, yeah, why, why do you think that there is, I mean, you know, there's four dudes sitting up here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> why, why, yeah, what do you think, like, do you have any theories as to why? Is it marketing? Is it male psychology? Is it... Yeah. yeah, I mean, are you speaking to the entirety of the games industry, yeah? Like the are you speaking to the entire entirety of the games industry, like the culture of it? Just in general. I mean, yeah, yeah. for instance, like a lot of my female friends, uh, first off, there are plenty of women who play all sorts of different totally. games. 
There's also certain games like The Sims that seems to have appealed you know, to more of my female friends versus like Halo has appealed to more of my male friends. So I'm just curious about, but overall the game industry does seem to be, uh, you know, the demographics, I don't know, maybe I might be totally wrong and women are playing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is statistically half and half. Yeah. Uh, like according to ESR statistics. But you are right. Like there was a big thing yesterday where a major publisher released a big survey, the Ubisoft and thing. the first question on it was, "Are you male or female?" And if you marked female, that was the end of the survey for you. Wow! And then everyone else had fifty more questions about what they want to see Assassin's Creed do next. No I was like, "Oh, you you can't do that. That's not what anybody wants." But then there's there's also things that are even the even the people that think they're doing very well about it. My fiance just played Fallout 3 for the first time, and, and I'd always thought that was a great, like, oh, you choose your gender and these different things happen, and she had to point out to me that, like, the finding your dad and dealing with your daddy issues thing, the story is the same, so it still feels like you're a male character in the way that it should have swapped with her. So it, like, it, it, it wasn't a, a separate but equal sort of experience that, that adapted in that way. I was like, oh, I, I never knew that. And, and, uh, and to go through those things, like it's, it's weird to see the industry get so much better at so many things and then to be like, well, but that not enough people are on board or ask the questions or if it turns out you're female, like that's the end of the survey for you, goodbye. Like, uh, so it, it always feels like it's getting better, but maybe it isn't. I, I can my argument would be that the origin of the technologies predetermines what is done on them, and that when you look at the history of computing technology, uh, basically it's all just war technology that was developed by men, and that something about that point of origin embeds the ideologies of the people who originally created the devices. And that's why the world is awful now. That's why, um, that's why the future has been despoiled and ruined. Um, because look at the people who developed the technology that has determined the last, uh, what, 25 years, 20, 25 years. It's entirely the outgrowth of the defense industry. And it's entirely the outgrowth of people who are able to cloak their warmongering in terms of intellectual freedom and that creates a space that's inherently exclusive of anything other than that and there's no escape and, <laughs> and uh, right. if you want if you want more of that you can you can buy my book <laughs> I hate the internet uh, inspiring note. yes it's been yeah. it's been it's uh, been well reviewed yeah um, I just wanted to thank Anya and Skylight one more time. So yeah, thank you guys for, for having us. And um, You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.